Okay, we are continuing our study in marriage, got through a certain part. It turns out that statistically the majority of my sermons have part twos, and uh, on particularly slow Sundays they end up going to part three and four. But we will just chalk that up to God's good providence. There is uh, plenty to learn from His Word, really, an inexhaustible supply of life-giving, life-transforming truth, so we'll take that as it is. So we are in Reforming Marriage. The title, if you will look at your... Uh, bulletins, Reforming Marriage, Jezebel's, Delilah's, and Constant Drippings. And of course, we are uh, hitting up certain scriptures because really we are uh, consulting a multitude of particular passages to help us understand uh, more completely and more specifically this precious God-given role to the wife that is submission, respect, and honor that she is to render joyfully and completely to her husband. And of course, we, we concentrate on this well aware of the cultural backlash that is so present when it comes to a woman's role and calling within marriage. And so I would say that makes it all the more necessary to press back with this issue and insist that the light of God's Word addresses the situation, and of course, has the final say. God's Word is our starting and it is our ending point. And we trust in its authority. We trust that it is good, even if it says things that seem weird to us or countercultural. And you would say, well, of course God's Word is countercultural. Right? It's our starting point. So whenever you have unbelief, it is going to confront that unbelief. And so, of course, in the 21st century America, and given much of society's views, on marriage, particularly the role of women within that marriage, we must pay careful attention to see how the Word of God confronts the errors of an unbelieving culture. And of course, find the truth and the blessing that is hidden within. So our foundational text for this section is also, incidentally, the foundational text for the entire study of reforming marriage, and that is Ephesians chapter 5. So if you'll turn there, that'll be our starting point today. Sorry, Ephesians chapter, I think I said Ephesians chapter 4. I mean Ephesians chapter 5. Now let's pay attention to these specific verses. Okay, Ephesians chapter 5. In verse 24, we read this. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject or ought to be to their husbands in everything. So that's the first one. And of course, this tells us, among many other things, that the wife, when it regards submission, when it regards regards being subject to her husbands, that they are not to compartmentalize submission. They are not to look for avenues in the relationship where they can be autonomous, do their own thing. Everything is done by the wife with respect to her husband being the head of that relationship and, of course, the head of the household. And so that authority is to be honored in every respect. So in every category, the husband is to be honored as head of the household. Now scroll down, if you will, to verse 33. This is the next one. After Paul explains this, the the beauty of marriage as a reflection of Christ's love for His bride, we read in verse 33, Uh, Paul's closing point on marriage, nevertheless, each individual among you is also to love his own wife even as himself. So there's the call to the husband. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. 
And so what this tells us, of course, is that this submission is very deliberate. And it is also diligent. We keep talking about or emphasizing the point that godliness, and of course, godliness pertains to the marriage union. We want our marriages to be godly. And we understand that that godliness is not on autopilot. Even though we, though we walk by the Spirit, though we are in tune with the Spirit, though we know what the Word of God says, we are not on autopilot as it regards obedience to the Word of God. Even though we are inclined that way supernaturally, this obedience to the Lord's Word takes a lot of diligence. It is done on purpose. And so we teach a lesson like this dealing with the specifics of submission, or I would say dealing with the struggles that wives often encounter regarding submission, so that they will be able to keep close tabs on those things. All within the context of Paul's assertion here that this subjection, that this submission to their husbands is to reflect the church's devotion and subjection to the Lord Jesus. So when we consider these things that the Word of God says regarding some of the the pitfalls found within submission and subjection, we do so understanding this mysterious and yet, I would say, intriguing and joyful connection with Christ's relationship to His bride. And so as we restate again and again, when there is this kind of humble submission in marriage in response to sacrificial and life-giving love and devotion from the husband, we find, I believe, a marriage that is blessed, that is joyful, that is harmonious. A marriage in which, rather than the husband and his wife seeking their own interests, they are together seeking what is good for one another in order to serve the Lord together. That is... They seek God's interests as the top priority. That is, the glory and proclamation of His own name. And one thing that I would also like to add, wives, for your encouragement is, we, I know we've kind of characterized this as a, as a systems check and that some of these things are very hard to hear and be reminded of. But the fact is, I do not want you to think of these things, helpful though they may be, as a laundry list to make your husband happy. And I realize, yes, in a godly marriage, we desire one another's mutual happiness. I think that is a godly thing, but happiness is never presented as the be-all and end-all. That is your happiness with one another. And so we want to be careful that happiness, that your husband's happiness in this lesson, does not become an idol in your marriage. Your husband's happiness is not your top priority. It is the glory of God. More on that later. But one of the purposes of going through these specifically is to make you aware of the, gen- of, the, of the specific pitfalls of an unrighteous approach or view to marriage due primarily, now this is key, due primarily to an incorrect view of marriage. That is, not really knowing what marriage is for or what marriage is about. And of course, an incorrect view ultimately of God. Any problems that you have in life or in marriage stem ultimately from a wrong or distorted view of God. So if we can understand who God is and what He has done for us, then we can understand very clearly this grand truth that marriage is meant to reflect. That is, 
God's love for His people, Christ's sacrificial love for His bride, so that He may present her in all of her spotless glory and beauty. So, of course, we want to have a correct view of God. And, of course, that draws us to the Gospel. That's where it begins. So, for you wives out there, the goal in this is that you would know how the Gospel of Jesus Christ has freed you from these things. View it in relationship to that. View it in that context. Rather than all these things, they're, they're, they're annoyances in my marriage. I'm struggling with victory over them. View these things from the point of the cross. That in Jesus Christ, you are granted victory over these things. That through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord will provide you with every resource to walk in the power of the Spirit, to be a God-honoring and a husband-honoring wife, and to obey the commandments of Jesus Christ. Think of these things as things you are free from. Think of righteousness, being a righteous bride, as something you are free to do. Not just something you have to do, but something you get to do. An opportunity that is grounded in the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Even think of what Paul says. Paul exhorts the Corinthian church, right? He, he brings up certain sins, certain things that they have fallen prey to. In 1 Corinthians 6, we read this, Or do you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you think, you know, Paul could could put it in such a sense that they're like, oh, well, I still say I still struggle with these things. Or these things still uh, remain pitfalls. How am I ever going to be free from them? But look at, listen to the perspective that Paul offers. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So Paul isn't saying that they're never going to be challenged with, by, by the temptation of these things, but he's simply saying, this is not you anymore. This is not to characterize you anymore. So when we talk about Jezebel's Delilah's and constant drippings and the things that inevitably accompany those characteristics, the first truth you need to know is that through the power of the gospel, wives, you are free from these things. You have been set free by the power of the gospel from behaving like these things. Such were some of you, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. That is key to being a righteous wife, to being submissive to your husband, to being subjective to your own husbands. And so we explored several categories, trying to get specific here. These are the things to be on the lookout for. These are the things from which the Gospel has set you free. Now, of course, we've gone over you know, the Jezebel, the Delilah. We've talked about the, the nag. We've talked about the deserter. And of course, all of these fall under sort of one big umbrella, and that is what we have characterized, for a lack of better term, as the unlovely wife. The wife who is, continues to resist the grace that her husband confers. The big truth here we keep uh, hammering away at is that Scripture maintains that love confers loveliness. So we find it is inconsistent, and I would even go so far as to say 
wicked and ungodly for a wife to resist the love of her husband by not being lovely. To resist the transforming presence of love within marriage. Of grace within that marriage union. Now remember, again, this relationship is to reflect Christ's love for His church. So imagine the church being rebellious against her Lord, rebuffing every grace, every act of love that He confers on us. Saying that I am still going to be unlovely. I am still going to live like my previous life. I am still going to embrace those characteristics and remain unsanctified. Imagine the church saying that to Christ who laid down His life for her. Completely counter to, to Christ's own vision for His bride. To make her lovely, to make her beautiful. To endow her with every grace necessary to reflect His glory. So any recalcitrant, rebellious, and ultimately unlovely wife completely mangles this vision that He has. This is, this is very similar to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to as cheap grace. Especially in the 20th and 21st century, there was a gospel called the Gospel of Easy Believism, where all you really had to do was intellectually agree with the claims of Christ. And just based on that, purely and only on that, one could be saved. One could reckon themselves as right with God. That is a cheap grace. That is a grace that does not count the cost. That is a grace that does not acknowledge or embrace the true transforming power of the Gospel. That is, grace is not to be seen as something that gives you the right to let yourself go. The church is not allowed to let herself go. The bride is not called to let herself go. That is, grace should not make one ugly, lazy, or worldly. Rather, grace transforms one to be beautiful, in every sense of the word, diligent, and godly. There is nothing that grace provides that should give license to make one any of those things. Whether that is the church, or whether that is a wife. To affirm that is to deny the power of grace. To affirm that is to deny grace itself. It's to say that grace is impotent and has no power, has no strength. It is ultimately to say that that is the same with the Gospel if we affirm a cheap grace. And so it is no wonder then that Peter tells men in 1 Peter chapter 3 that they are to treat their wives as fellow heirs of the grace of life. And I think it's very critical that we do make this connection when we endeavor to Invest in a God-honoring marriage. Because marriage is the primary human relationship that exemplifies, that projects the grace of life. And that's what makes it so tragic when, a, when you see a marriage in turmoil. When you see a marriage, as we say, on the rocks, when both the man and his wife are about to give up. Because the question comes up, where is this grace? If the marriage union is meant to project the grace of life, then where is the grace? Where is the Gospel? In fact, nearly every counseling session I have been a part of, I've had the joy to be a part of, whether it's premarital, marital or tragically, 
postmarital or on the verge of postmarital, the first question I ask a couple is this. What is your understanding of the gospel? What is your understanding of God's grace shown to you in Christ? Because if you do not understand that, you are never going to understand the point of marriage. This grace is to be obvious in marriage. The most obvious place in human relationships. That is where it is to be abundant, robust, easily identified, powerful, understood in all of its beauty and all of the love that Jesus has for us as His church and the joyful obedience that we render to our Savior because of what He has done for us. So just to remind you of those things. So again, we've mentioned the first five really with this unloveliness kind of being the umbrella term. We've gone through the the four that followed that, but I wanted to hit up a few more today to kind of just give you a well-rounded view of some of the pitfalls involved. And of course, there is going to be overlap. There always is. But let that overlap serve as another remind you, sort of as another punch, if you will. A punch to your mind so that you are simultaneously aware of the challenges of the pitfalls that I think particularly afflict women, but also a reminder of how the Gospel has set you free from these things. So we've kind of started off with some of the bigger themes uh, regarding some of these challenges, and I think the first one we're going to encounter today is also one of those one of those challenges. And you'll, you'll start to see where I'm going, but I think the first one we want to go through today... Again, we've been through the Jezebel, the Delilah, the Nag, the Deserter. We all understand those things. Now, I think another important one to understand that, of course, is connected with the previous four or five is simply this. This is the category of the goddess. The category of the goddess. And what I draw this from, particularly in Scripture, is an idol known as the Queen of Heaven. Most of you are familiar, especially if you've read the book of Jeremiah, you are familiar with the Queen of Heaven. You're probably also familiar with this cultural nuance of how women identify themselves. I am a goddess, or, or I am a queen. I wanted to be, I want to be treated like a queen by my husband. I want to be treated like the goddess I am. There's an even, there's even a, uh, a commercial. There's a particular product, particular lady product. I believe it has to do with uh, the ability of a woman to have smooth legs. And so you have to buy this razor, right? And it's called the Venus razor. You all know what I'm talking about. I'm your Venus. I'm your fire, your desire, right? I just got to love that marketing. I mean, see, I remembered it, right? And it's a razor that's going to help you feel like a goddess, right? And you think, how about just uh, make my legs smooth like the product is designed to do, right? Clearly a man did not come up with that commercial. But... This is sort of part of this, this mindset that I think is, is imposed on women. They have to think of themselves as a goddess, as a queen. Of course, we see what Jeremiah has to say about that. This phrase, queen of heaven, appears only in two passages. And of course, by implication in others. Dealing with Israel's idolatry. If you guys want to turn with me briefly to Jeremiah, the Book of Jeremiah, one of the major, one of the major prophets. 
Jeremiah chapter, I believe it's chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. Let's look at, let's start at verse 16. The message at the temple gate. Here's what Jeremiah is to proclaim. As for you, do not pray for this people, and do not lift up cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I do not hear you. So right off the bat, we understand that the situation in Israel is quite dire to the point where he says, don't even pray for them anymore. That's, that's the lost cause that this has become. So he says, do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? Of course, this is significant because where, what is Jerusalem? That is where God dwells with His people. The children gather wood, verse 18, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods in order to spite me. Do they, do they spite me, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves they spite to their own shame? And of course, His wrath abides on them. And... You could say that the Queen of Heaven is a designation of many different names of surrounding pagan goddesses. You've heard of the Ashtoreth, you've heard of Astarte. And when it comes to Baal worship, the Queen of Heaven was thought to be the wife of Baal, also known as Molech. So you have all these surrounding uh, false gods, and the Ashtoreth, or Astarte, was known as a significant goddess among them. Had the reputation as a fertility goddess, of course, for the bearing of children, worshipped as the Queen of Heaven, and Israel becomes this illustration of what takes place when pagan worship is blended with the worship of the true and living God. And of course, that's, that's no worship at all. And Israel fell prey to that. When you talk about Ashtoreth worship, we covered some of that in Second Peter. This kind of idolatry really afflicted Israel. It became a snare to them. Also, it's mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 44. Jeremiah 44. Let's start at verse 16. Jeremiah 44. As for the message that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we are not going to listen to you but rather we will certainly carry out every word that has proceeded from our mouths by burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her just as we ourselves, our forefathers, our kings and our princes did in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and were well off and saw no misfortune. So you see the mindset here. We did fine. We, served the, we worshipped and served the Queen of Heaven. And we were still blessed. Nothing bad happened. Must be that must mean it's okay. That really becomes the most dangerous form of idolatry of all. Is it's not simply rejecting the Lord wholesale and going to another god. No, it's the compromise. It's the distortion. It's the blending of worship. It's the try, it's the attempt to serve two masters. It's trying to hold on to. Worship of the true living God, and yet bring in all these other goddesses, all these other wives, which of course is a complete perversion of worship. That is why 
The Lord repeatedly says, I am God and there is no other. I am the Lord, not this God. Worship me, not this God. Worship me alone. That has always been God's stance. And it is nothing short of blasphemous idolatry idolatry to try to import to add the presence and worship and honor of other gods and goddesses. And so, by the time we get to Jeremiah 44, we see a very stiff-necked kind of rebellion going on in the people of Israel. They will not give up worshiping their idols. They will continue to pour out their drink offerings, continue to bake bread, and to give her, to give this Queen of Heaven credit, glory, for this so-called prosperity that they experienced. This plentiful food and drink. They were well off, no misfortune. So how does that relate to marriage? Well, in goddess worship, you point your attention and make the false idol the center of your worship. The center of your devotion. Now, goddess syndrome, when it comes to wives says this, the wife says this, is that it's all about me and my status and happiness. Once again, the wife that wants to be treated like a princess, treated like a queen. In fact, one of my, one of my relatives, as the story goes, went through his, went, went through his divorce, and it came to our attention that the reason that his wife departed from him was because she wanted to be treated like a queen. And her husband wasn't doing that. And so she went somewhere else where she thought she would be treated like she deserved. Like this queen of heaven that she saw herself as. Now this is an important lesson to husbands. That husbands, you are to love your wives, not to worship them. Wives, your husband is to love you sacrificially, devotionally, but not to worship you. His primary duty in this relationship when it, when it, when it uh, comes to loving you is to point you to God. It is to point you to Christ. Not to make you God. Not to make you Christ. And this is where a very significant saying, even amongst Christians today, comes in that we have to address. And most of you will know what it is. Happy wife, happy life. You know, I got, you know, it's getting late. I got to get home. You know, I love all this talk about, you know, the, the depths of the Trinity, all this profound talk about theonomic reconstructionism and this bright future for the people of God. But oh, I got to get home. It's getting late. Oh, you know what they say, bro. Happy wife, happy life. Just cut that out, man. <laughs> that is a terrible philosophy. It is a terrible philosophy and a terrible pitfall for your wife if you go slinging that teaching around. Remember, if you are a godly man, your wife should be inclined to follow you. And so if you start telling her stuff like that, she's going to be inclined to believe it. And so what this happens, inevitably, is that this kind of thinking puts the happiness of the wife on a pedestal and eclipses all other priorities. 
And if you, as a husband, train your wife to think this way, she will become accustomed to this preeminent position in the home and struggle to let go of it. Women like attention. So do men. But women like attention. They like being paid attention to, especially by their husbands. But this attention can easily become perverted or misdirected. Yes, you are to honor your wife. Even the Proverbs 31 woman is exalted. She is praised by her husband and her children. And yet, she is not put in such a preeminent position that she displaces the Lord as center to that relationship. I will say this. I think, given our understanding of male headship in the home, it is much more accurate to link the husband's happiness in his God than his wife's happiness in her circumstances to the satisfaction in marriage. We've talked about the husband as the dominant in marriage because he is the leader. He is the head. So if the husband's misery dominates his household, guess what? Wife and kids are probably going to be miserable as well. The problem though is, is that husband doesn't rhyme with life. Unfortunately, wife rhymes with life, so that's where we get the saying and we keep saying it. But the problem continues. The problem remains is that, of course, even the husband's happiness is not the be-all and end-all. But we find if the husband's happiness is in God, is in walking with God, is in pleasing the Lord by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, that aroma will permeate the rest of his household. But happiness, personal happiness, cannot be the be-all and end-all. And if it is, happiness will be something that is eventually claimed as inalienable. And if you, and if you ever become unhappy, then you have the right to leave and find something or someone that will make you happy. Whether you are a wife or a husband. If happiness in your circumstances, if happiness with one another becomes elevated to the post of God in your life, and one of you fails to deliver, you'll say, well, I gotta serve my God. You're not making me happy. i got to go find this elsewhere. It is unbelievable how many marriages fall apart because of this lack of happiness. Where the emphasis is taken off our joy in God. Our mutual love and submission toward one another. Our, our, our willingness and desire to persevere for the highest good of each other. And to bring glory to God. It's easier just to give up when your spouse fails to make you happy. And this is a particular pitfall to women because a woman's happiness is emphasized so much in relationships. And this is the woman whose personal glory ends up being an end in of itself. This kind of woman ends up being a false bride, a queen of heaven, an idol in the relationship, rather than being a reflection of the true bride of Christ rather than being a glory and a covering for her husband, who in turn gives glory to Christ, this is a woman who desires all of the glory. Rather than being lovely and glorious so as to bring glory to her Lord and Savior. So you see the difference. Is that the goddess sees herself as the end point 
of that glory. And so, of course, happiness becomes this constant effort. Could you imagine? Could you imagine how ironic that is? The misery that is produced in marriage when all you're trying to do is make each other happy. Rather than asking one another, even in difficult times, what do we really think about God? What do we really think about Christ? What do we really think about what the Word of God has to say about marriage and what it means to live in a blessed marriage? Let's think about those things rather than how we can just desperately make each other happy. Especially pursuing a happiness that is detached from all of those things. So don't make happiness the be-all and end-all. Otherwise, and mark this, otherwise your marriage will be fear-based rather than joy-based or glory-based. It will be fear-based because you will always be afraid of displeasing each other. Then your efforts toward one another, even doing the right thing, will be so that you are not afraid of what the other person is going to do. If you don't do that, so you see the difference here. A fear-based marriage worries constantly about what the other person thinks and so does good to that person so as to please them so that you no longer have to be afraid of what they will do should you fail. And that is, the, that is a completely wrong-headed way of looking at marriage. Marriage wasn't meant to be fear-based. When a man and a woman do good to one another, they do so out of joy. They do so in reference to the grace of life that they partake together in, in light of what God has done for them in Christ. So rather than do things in a fear-based way because one of you has elevated yourself to a preeminent position in marriage, rather, repent and understand the grace of God that is that has come to bear by the fact that God has given you to one another and do good to one another joyfully. Think about our attitude toward the Gospel. Think, remember, this marriage union reflects the truth of the Gospel, the reality of the church's union with Christ. Does the church live in this fashion? Do we live every day in terror that God will smite us if we screw up? Not at all. Thank you. I see, I see that head shaking. No, absolutely not. How do we live before God? Of course we live in fear and reverence toward Him, but we live in joy before God and we, and we serve God in joy precisely because He does accept, accept us. Because we don't need to fear condemnation anymore. So there's, so, so perfect love has driven out that fear of condemnation. And so we don't serve God so that we please Him. We serve God because in Christ He has already been pleased with us. He is pleased with us, so we serve Him. So take that knowledge, take that attitude into your marriage. So here's how this mindset works. Rather than trying to constantly make one another happy, rather than trying to constantly please one another, understand that... So, husband, look at your wife and say, the Lord has given you to me to love you. Right, to lay my life down for you, to provide for you, to protect you, to pastor you. 
That pleases me. Okay. And then, of course, wife, look at your husband, say it to him, regard him in this way. The Lord has given you to me, right? Fellow heirs of the grace of life. So, that pleases me. Therefore, I can joyfully submit to you and be subject to you. Your pleasure needs to come from God first. What God has given you first. Otherwise, it's just going to be a game of manipulation. Otherwise, it's just going to be, you're going to be constantly miserable because the struggle to please one another is so great. Understand that in Christ, God is pleased with you. Be pleased with one another in light of that reality and together serve the Lord with joy. And of course, there's going to be challenges. There's going to be pitfalls along the way. But let that joy be your foundation. And when it comes to, we're going to need to leave this for a later time, but when it comes to pleasing one another, we can talk about that in a later sermon. But don't bring calamity on your household because you have made an idol of your own happiness, because you have made an idol of trying to please one another. And that is all that is wrapped up in the goddess syndrome. Here's the next one. And this just bears repeating, so we remind ourselves that we are to be faithful in our marriage. This, and, there's, and there's no PC way of talking about this. The second one today is the seductress. The woman who is the flirt. The woman who is prone to unfaithfulness. And of course, the seductress brings great dishonor upon the head of her husband because in her unfaithfulness, she demonstrates or she, she tells the world that she is not, here it is again, she is not pleased with her husband. We read this, this about this in Proverbs 7. And behold, a woman comes to meet him. Right? Look out the window, you see this youth, you see this naive young man, he's just wandering, he's just setting himself up for a trap. And behold, a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart, she is boisterous and rebellious, or she is loud. She's loud. She's rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She's restless. She does not see the keeping of a home for her husband as something that is noble or something that is her priority. She's always moving around. She's looking for trouble. And so she sees this man and she says, there, there's my next victim. There's my target. And how does, how does she tempt him? She says, my husband is at, he's, he's on a long journey. He's away on business. He's not going to be back for a while. Come, let us have our fill of love. And then, of course, this fool goes to his folly. I believe the passage goes on to say, an arrow pierces his liver, right? That's a, that's a death shot right there. If you've ever been hunting, I'll tell you, go for the heart or the liver. That'll drop your prey faster than anything. Verse 12, she is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. And we read this warning from Hebrews 13.4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. That is clear, plain, unmistakable language regarding the penalty for those who do not honor that marriage commitment. It's a warning against the adulterer and the adulteress. And like I said, we all crave attention. Right? Women especially. And so, here is a woman who cannot remain faithful to her husband. She is not satisfied. She is not pleased with him. She does not see her husband as a gift from God. 
She does not see her husband even as desirable. And so she looks for companionship outside of the marriage union. God's Word is clear that this is adultery. But here's the mindset. Women, I want, you to, encu- I want to encourage you. Think about your husband. Think about how you desire him. That he is your own husband. That if there is to be any seduction, it is to be within your marriage, not outside of it. And for that, we're going to go straight to Song of Solomon 3. Listen to the opening three verses. On my bed, night after night, I sought him whom my soul loves. Now the context here is a dream that the bride is having. This is the desire she has for her own man. I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but did not find him. I must arise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I must seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but did not find him. The watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me, and I said, have you seen him whom my soul loves? And think about this mindset. If your husband has ever gone from the home, if he has to even, especially if he has to travel on business for a while, and some of you military wives know the pain of this, your husband gets deployed and you're away from him for several months, you know, you know the strain that that brings. And, that, and that's an appropriate strain. You should miss your husband. You should desire to be with the one whom your soul loves. Listen to Song of Solomon chapter 7, 10-13. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us rise early and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine is budded and its blossoms have opened, and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. And this is a beautiful picture of the wife's desire for her man. Look, listen to this, verse 13. The mandrakes have given forth fragrance, and over our doors are all choice fruits, both new and old, which I have saved up for you, my beloved. And just so you know what mandrakes are, they were thought to be an aphrodisiac, or they increased the fertility of a woman. So this is good, divinely inspired stuff that gives us a biblical view of romantic love within the marital union. But that desire is there. But that desire is plentiful. But that desire is nurtured and cared for. Whether you're a newlywed or you've been married for decades, but that desire is continually nurtured and that it builds over time. And that that is a way to protect your marriage and to not leave yourself open to temptation, especially when it comes to other wayward, godless men who are just looking for an opportunity. Protect your marriage and keep your vows. Here's another one. And, I've, and I struggle with what to call this category. And, it, and it, of course, it is linked to unloveliness. It's linked in some sense to desertion. But I struggled kind of going back and forth between the rebel or the unteachable one. Um, think of it this way, the wife who sees herself, she is the resistance. Right. And so for whatever reason, a certain habit has built up in the home where you routinely resist your husband as head of the household. You resist what he says. You struggle with being unteachable. You struggle with correction. Now this is a tough one for some women because Christian women are inclined to desire, Okay, if their mind is captive to the Word of God, they are inclined to, to desire a man who will lead them spiritually. Who will be the leader? Who will speak up? Who knows the Word of God and can instruct them well? And typically, 
there are two, there's two primary ways that a man leads in his household. One is by example. He just does what God tells him to do. He leads by example. And the other one, this is the more difficult one, because I don't think wives struggle so much to see the example their husband leads, leaves and then follows that lead. I think the hard one is that the husband is also commanded to lead his wife by word. The husband needs to know the Scriptures. He needs to know the Word of God well enough to be able to instruct his wife. And of course, what that means for husbands, and this is where we get kind of... this is where. This is where it starts to get a little messy. Is that it requires the husband to tell his wife what to do. Let me say that again. You don't quite understand that. As heads of our household, as teachers within our household, men, we are called to tell our wives what to do. We are to correct. We are to exhort. We are to say often, wife, woman, not this, but this, and this becomes a struggle for many women. Struggling with verbal correction. Now, <laughs> there, there are typically three reactions to this. One is the one we all know and love from past teaching. Yes, my Lord, or yes, my Lord. Okay. You see the wisdom in what your husband says, and so when he says it, there is yes, husband. Another category is, is, uh, anger or displeasure. You know, I don't, I don't, typically what it, what has happened in an interaction like this is not so much the content of what the husband says, it is usually the way he says it. The wife does not like the way he offers that exhortation or correction. And so there is anger or displeasure. And then of course, the third potential reaction, the one we all know and love, I mean, we really love, is silence. Just no, no, no response. Sweetheart, my love, my queen, <laughs> need to say this to you, and so you do. You say it gently, you say it clearly, and it's greeted with silence. There's no way around this. You did not like what your husband said. Maybe you didn't like the way he said it. Maybe you guessed a motivation behind what he said. But the bottom line is, and we'll talk about this with more depth when it comes to communication. The bottom line is, you just don't like what your husband said. He led by example, and now he tries to lead by word. And one of your responses could be to sulk. You want him to know that you don't like what he said, and so you're not talking to him. Okay. So, let me give you an example. As men of the household, we are required, we are commanded by the God, the King of the universe, the King of heaven, creator of heaven and earth, to shepherd you, to instruct you, to offer those corrections, to even make sure that you are being our helpmeet. Okay, so just like Titus 2, you have the priority to work at home. That's one of the priorities of the wife, along with taking care of a husband, raising children, right? you keep the home. So, imagine a scenario that when your husband comes home and he realizes that the house has gotten out of order a little bit. Right? You've both been busy. We understand busyness happens. But he tells you, 
sweetheart, the house needs to be clean and kept. It's gotten kind of messy. Now here, this is so important. Wives, don't take that as a personal attack. Don't take that as a personal attack. Husbands, we have our own, we have our own issues when it comes to our wives correcting us, but I'm talking to the wives now, so this is for you. Don't take it as a personal attack. Ask yourself this question if it helps. Do you believe your husband loves you? Do you, do you believe your husband loves you? Yes or no? Yes? Yeah? Okay. So when he has to correct or exhort you, do you believe that he has your best in mind and that he is not trying to take a cheap shot at you or wound you? If you believe your husband loves you, then you believe that his correction and exhortation is also for the good of your house. So don't take it as a personal attack, but don't, but don't go off in a tailspin of self-condemnation. He's not telling you that you're a horrible person. He's not telling you you're a horrible mother. He's simply asking you about the cleanliness of the house because he is instructed by God to do so. So that is a way to honor your husband because he is obeying the commandments of God in addressing those things that pertain to an orderly house. And there's probably many other examples I can name, but I think that one will suffice. And, and I think the, the, the wider issue here is if you, if you want your husband to lead and he tries to lead you, don't communicate to him that you don't want him to lead when he actually does lead you. And this is a difficult, is a difficult area for many women. And that's why we bring it up. So when it comes to that, don't, don't protest, don't sabotage, don't, don't automatically rebuff his efforts. Don't greet his instruction with automatic suspicion. Don't automatically assume the worst of his motives. And this is, this goes into so much, so much of this is wrapped up in the marriage union is that you have to look for the best in each other. You have to assume the best of one another. Don't automatically assume these ill-godless motives that are, that are looking to tear you down. So, that's, that's the rebel category. And, you know, I pray that we, we should be praying for one another that we grow in, in teachability, but I'm glad that one is, is, is through. But here's the other one. We could call this, you know, we have to all, we have to all, be on guard against what we say. The church, I believe that one of the greatest uh, traps of the church, one of the greatest sins the church commits within the body is, is gossip. Right. We could call this the talker. Maybe a subcategory of a nag. This deals with a woman who is disagreeable or complaining or has a contestable spirit against her husband and his decisions and verbalizes it and talks about it. This is a woman who interrupts her husband that demonstrates she doesn't really care what he has to think. And of course, that undermines his leadership. That is to say, just as James tells us, right? be, be slow to anger. Right? Be slow to anger. Be slow to speak. Quick to what? Quick to listen. Be, be ready. Be ready to listen rather than to talk. It's difficult to any marriage, to any conversation, in fact, if you're sitting around and you're thinking about how you're going to respond rather than actually listening to what the person says. And that is going to make you prone to interrupt. I would say, wives, don't disrespect your husband by constantly interrupting him. Let him, let him speak and even let him be wrong. Even let him be wrong. And it's okay not to have an opinion about everything or to make every opinion known. And of course, that includes, that includes being 
being a gossip. And we all know the power of words and how they can build up and how they can tear down. But um, even Paul tells this to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He talks about women who are gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to say. And when, you know, if you have a woman who, 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 who gives her priority to the home, she's going to be involved in other women's lives. And one of the challenges there is to avoid gossip, to avoid these relational entanglements that don't involve you personally. Now, it's one thing to, to care for someone, to talk about someone in the interest of caring for them, but it's, it's just as easy to get off the rails and start maligning their character. And we have to be very careful of that in any season within the church. Listen to what Proverbs says. Man who lacks judgment derides his neighbor, but a man of understanding holds his tongue. A gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy man keeps a secret. If you want to be trustworthy, be a vault. When someone has told you something and you are not meant to spread it, then keep it to yourself. This goes very far in a relationship. This goes very far, especially when it comes to a woman's relationship with her husband and her church. Proverbs 16.28, a perverse man stirs up dissension and a gossip, <clears throat> excuse me, and a gossip separates close friends. Fool's mouth is his undoing and his lips are a snare to his soul. So once again, be very careful about what you say and keep these in mind. Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it your business, right? When it comes to repeating something, right? Is it true? Have the facts been established? Is it necessary? Do you really need to be talking about this? And is it your business? And if it is not your business, then don't say anything. You will bring great reproach on your household if you are known as a gossip. And then, is it redemptive, right? Does it seek the good for someone? Are you telling this person so that there is an opportunity to bring grace in their life? Or is it divisive and tear down? Very important. And attached to this is the trash talker. <laughs> Think the opposite of Sarah. Rather than calling her husband Lord in the quietness of her heart, this is a woman who constantly puts down and seeks to humiliate her husband often in front of others. She focuses on his faults and cannot find any redemptive quality in him. And of course, it's easy. It's easy to, you know, we don't want familiarity to breed contempt in your marriage, where you're constantly ragging on your, ragging on your husband for his perceived faults and failing to acknowledge and praise him for the good that he does do. Very dangerous to the harmony of marriage. This, of course, of course goes hand in hand with the hypocrite. This is the woman who pretends to respect her husband, but then talks trash about her husband when he is not around. Now, this is instruction for both men and women, for both husbands and wives. There is, there is a, a temptation, I think, to, to sort of be pretentious when it comes to speech, to, to, to praise our spouses, and then, of course, when they're not around, to say what we really think. That's not to say we can't address certain challenges to share our concerns with one another, but if it is just for the point of bringing shame upon their head, then that is a disgraceful and unloving and disrespectful act toward one another. I think I'm, uh, I think I'm at the last one. I think this one is very important too. We call this last one the malcontent. The malcontent. Of course, we're all as believers called to be content. But this is the attitude of the wife who looks at her husband and says that nothing he does is ever enough. This is sort of that mentality of what well, they keep keeping up with the Joneses. 
that the wife looks at what her husband does and what her husband produces, and she compares him to someone, to a husband, who does more or has more, who brings in more income. And so the first thing, I think, in steps toward repentance in this kind of view, is to stop comparing your husband's success to the success of other men. There's nowhere in Scripture that says you have to keep up with the Joneses. You don't have to worry about the size of your house. You don't have to worry about the horsepower of your car. Rather, simply show honor and acknowledge the goodness of your husband for the hard work he accomplishes. Simple as that. And yes, it's nice to have some of those nice things in life. It's always nice and exciting to go out and get a new car. Most men in here want to provide their wives with good things. They want their wives to have nice things. They want to go out to dinner. They want their kids to be able to participate in particular activities. All those are good things, but we also recognize that fundamentally, the husband is at bare minimum called to provide for the basic necessities of life. And we're going to go through seasons where we're in want. We're going to go through seasons where we have just a little. In 1 Timothy 6, 7 through 9, we read this, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be, con- we shall be content. Now, Paul is not saying that this must be the case for every Christian. He is simply saying that he is content with the most basic necessities of life. And sometimes, of course, given government intrusion into free markets and economic uncertainty, there will be seasons where that is all you have. And to be content with that. The fact that the Lord will provide, even even though sometimes it's on the most basic level. And Paul warns, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. And this is going to be a major challenge, wives, this morning. Think, think about that. When you, if you ever come to circumstances such as these, such as these, where the issue is contentment, are you going to be content with what the Lord has provided? Are you going to be content with a godly man who works hard to provide those basic necessities, even though the economy is in ruins? Who knows? We may, we may be headed down that road. So I say this to prepare you. But listen to what Paul says in Philippians 4. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with little, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Now this is not just something that may befall an apostle of the gospel. It may happen to us as well. And we have, and that's where we say, are we content with what God has given us? You know, are we content with that four-banger that constantly gushes oil, right? A four-banger is better than a no-banger, friends. The Lord has provided a car, right? And you are called to be content, but also to trust in God's provision. Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Think of Jesus' words. Consider the birds of the air, right? They they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Your heavenly Father feeds them. And if He can take care of birds, can't He take care of you who are of more value than many sparrows? We understand that certain things have to be put off. That shiny new toy, that vacation, even that dinner out for the sake of survival. 
That's the reality of living in a fallen world, and yet we are able to find our contentment in what in God's provision. And I think finally, in terms of women in your place in this sort of circumstance, encourage your husbands to diligence. Encourage them. But with a content heart that you understand that they are doing what they can to provide for your family and encourage them to continue to work hard and to be diligent and to be excellent in whatever employment capacity is available. And if he's a bum and continues to be a bum, that's where you appeal to your elders so we can get on his case. But all that, we will, uh, we will crash land the plane this morning. But uh, keep these things in prayer. Both of you, husbands, pray for your wives that they may um, employ the grace to avoid these pitfalls and to pursue uh, godly submission to honor you as Scripture commands and that your marriage can continue to grow. So with that, let's uh, entrust these things to God. Please bow your heads with me. Father, thank You again for Your amazing grace. Thank You that Thank you that uh, you have given us the gift of marriage. That in Christ you have made us fellow heirs together. And with that knowledge, we can continue to cultivate and to see grace in our marriages multiplied. And uh, Lord, that the word that has gone forth this morning will be sound instruction. Uh, that uh, that uh, each wife here will not see it as uh, browbeating or taking cheap shots, but... Lord, I do care um, for these marriages in here and we want to be on guard against those things that can potentially uh, inhibit joy in, in marriage. Lord, may, us, may we not uh, become enslaved by seeking one another's happiness, but to know, God, that because of what Jesus has done, You are happy with us and that that can be our starting point. And that our be-all and end-all can be, as man and wife, being satisfied in Christ and what He has done for us. And that He will be glorified through us being satisfied in Him together. Lord, strengthen us. Once again, I do pray that as You empower wives to be submissive to their own husbands, that You would empower husbands to love their wives sacrificially and with great devotion, with honor, Lord, with humility, as we live before You. Lord, knowing You've provided every resource, every example to make us good lovers of our wives. And so with great confidence, Father, with great faith, we can continue to commit our marriages to You. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.